Hello, and welcome to the Rancho Cordova podcast, brought to you by the Rancho Cordova Film Office. My name is Jose Ruiz, one of the producers behind the podcast. As we get ready to present our new season early next year, we would like to thank you, our listeners, without whom our show would not be possible. We really appreciate your support and commitment to tuning in each week. Today, in the spirit of the holidays, we bring you a very special episode hosted by our regular sports host, Mike Mirando. Please tune in next year, January 10th, for the first show of the new season. Throughout the year, we will be bringing you great guests and very special surprises along the way. On behalf of everyone here at the Ranch Cordova Film Office, we wish you all happy holidays and a great new year. Thank you for your continued support of the program, and we will see you all next year. Now on to this week's show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this month's sports segment of the Rancho Cordova podcast brought to you by the California Capitol Film Office. Well, folks, we're in the holiday season as the gift of Christmas and hope of a new year approach. My guest today is a local man whose message through a multitude of personal tragedies and subsequent triumphs can offer a beacon of hope. I've known Joey Ortiz for the better part of 35 years, mostly from his football playing days at Cordova High School. Joey grew up in Rancho Cordova, went to Riverview Elementary School, and Mitchell back in the days when it was a junior high. Joey was a star athlete, and during his senior year in 1988, under coach Max Miller, he developed into one of the best receivers in the section. 41 catches, 491 yards, and five touchdowns at a school not known for a premier passing attack. In addition, he was a pretty good kick and punt returner too. In fact, Joey made the Sacramento Bees All-Metro team as a return man on a ball club that went 8-5 and five and were Metro League co-champions. But Joey Ortiz led a parallel life, enduring a childhood that was laden with tragedy on several levels. As a young boy, he was routinely abused by his father in horrific ways, and by the time he was eight, he was already getting drunk as a means of escape. And by the time Joey was a teenager, Football had become an outlet for anger he was experiencing at home. And if all this weren't enough, Joey sustained multiple injuries as the result of a hit-and-run driver that sent him to the hospital with several life-threatening injuries. We're going to talk about all that and more during today's show. And Joey, over the years, has authored four books about his experiences, his tribulations, trials, and triumphs. He's been interviewed on Good Day Sacramento and shared his story of redemption on the 700 Club, among others. Today, Joey is 15 years clean and sober, and personally, Joey, I'm glad that you're here. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Mike. Absolutely. Great to be here. You know, you uh, have an extraordinary story, one that I think offers hope to those who are dealing with many of the same demons as you did, alcohol, uh, alcoholism, and drugs in particular. We're going to talk about football in a bit, but I want to start here, if it's okay with you, because children often see and experience things that are unspoken, as you once did, that can really change someone's life and not for the better. And especially true back in the 1970s and 80s, when you grew up, there was a stigma about abuse. Young children, in many cases, didn't talk about it, let alone report on it. So I want to start the relationship that you had with your father. And I know it was very painful and tumultuous, and you've written about it in your book. It was a tough subject to talk about, but let's start there. How difficult was that during your early life? 
Well, it was, we had a volatile household. Uh, my dad was a functioning alcoholic and drug addict himself and um, uh, took it upon himself when my mom was at work. He was a former uh, thoroughbred jockey and he would uh, take his horse whip and pin me in the front entrance to the house inside the front door and pull my pants down and beat me with a horse whip for minutes on end so I couldn't take it no more. Was there a reason that prompted all this? I mean, kids are never at fault, but there must have been obviously anger issues with him that was going on at the time. Well, I was an adventurous kid, so I was always into something, playing with tools or taking toys apart and couldn't put them back together. And so that would uh, that would work up his ire and he would take it out on me. Obviously, it was something that your mom was aware of? Not aware of. Really? Yeah. And I didn't share it with her at the time. I didn't know how to. Now, you have a sister I as do. well. Was she in the house at the time? She was. And this was something that just wasn't talked about or she didn't? No, my, my dad wielded a heavy fist, if you will. He was, he was a diminutive gentleman, only five foot three, but uh, he wielded a real heavy hand in the house at that time. Is this something that perhaps you may have shared with some friends that was going on? Nobody. It is. And there's also a mental health aspect to this, I think you'll agree, that presents a stigma, whether, uh, whether it's uh, uh, alcoholism or uh, abuse by a parent. Even back then, it's something that wasn't talked about. So you held this anger inside. Yeah, definitely. It, uh, it, I mean, it, was, it wasn't just beatings. It was, it was ultimately torture. But uh, what it did is it gave me the, uh, the ability to uh, endure a high level of pain at a young age that I, was, that I was able to use to my benefit in years coming. What was your ex first experience with alcohol? Um, well, my, you know, in the 70s, you're sitting on your grandpa's lap during Christmas or whatever, and he would have a beer in his hand and give you a sip, that kind of thing. That, that was my grandpa, um, may rest in peace. He worked for a Budweiser distributor in Eureka. So we always had a, a very large supply of beer at our house. Um, so at a young age in my neighborhood, you know, I was the eight year old that had all the beer. And so all my neighborhood friends that were three, four and five years older that were, that was all my buddies, who do you think they want to hang out with the eight year old with all the beer? And I had it all. Right. So we, we started, you know, going down to the river, taking a six pack down there, taking a 12 pack down there. I had so much beer in my garage. Nobody missed it. And so you started normalizing it, right? Absolutely. And so you figured that that was normal. You were self-medicating, obviously, because of the pain of the abuse brought on by your dad. You write about your grandparents in, in the book, uh, Merle and Edith, correct? Yes. And the role they played in offering you comfort and support. How did that relationship develop? Tell, tell me about that. Well, I was born in Eureka, and my grandparents uh, were all from Eureka, both of them. My mom was born in Eureka, and uh, pre uh, playing football and getting involved in sports, I would spend my summer times up in Eureka uh, with my grandparents. So we had a, you know, my grandpa would take me fishing and hunting and my grandma would take me picking blackberries and uh, raspberries. And I just take me to the beach. We, we had a lot of uh, good times as a kid. And it got me out of that, that uh, environment that I was in back with my dad. Did you share any of what was going on at home with your grandparents? No. I internalized it all. I didn't tell anybody. I didn't wow. tell my mom. And I'm a mama's boy. I didn't tell her. 
Well, it wasn't too long after that that your mom basically kicked him out of the house, right? Correct. And she did it in a rather creative way. Kind of walk yeah. me through that. Well, she led him to believe that they were just going to separate for a short period of time and she was going to help him move, get a few things together and move out to an apartment on Howe Avenue. And once she got him out of the house, there was no coming back. Well, it was certainly a good move on her part. She had to have known something was going on. Uh, smart mom, uh, smart person your mother was to do that. Yeah, my mom's a rock. She worked for the state of California for 28 years, and um, she's as, as solid of a human being as there is. Now, we're going to bounce between subjects here. We're going to go back to uh, your days at Cordova. And, and I remember you as an exceptional open field runner. Uh, once you uh, once you got the ball, if they had yards or stats for yards after the catch back then, I think your numbers probably would have been uh, no question. You'd have been among the uh, area leaders. But you chose jersey number eighty one for a reason. I did. Take me through that. Well, I was uh, I started off as a uh, Lynn Swan fan of the Steelers. Um, he was number eighty, and uh, I uh, or eighty eight, I should say. Um, and then I became an Art Monk fan later. And so I, I always wore 81 with a lot of pride. And I, I studied Art Monk and watched the games and recorded him when I could and wa watched him run routes and just his, he was my hero. So you patterned yourself after Art Monk. Yes. And watched him on TV a lot. And I think a lot of, a lot of kids do that. What was it about Art Monk that separated himself from, say, other receivers? Route running. And he he was he was a beast when it came to work ethic. He he refused to be outworked. That was he wasn't the fastest, he wasn't the biggest, but he had probably the best hands. And his his route running was was without question as good as it got. And while all this is going on, while you're starring for for Cordova High School, you're still this parallel situation going on, dealing with the pain of a father that's now out of the house. But at the same time, uh, alcohol and drugs have consumed you. How did you How did you deal with those uh, those things? Well, I when we lost, I drank. When we won, I drank more. Um, I life was just this constant party, if you would, and I celebrated everything. And so, uh, when there was high points, I just kept drinking more. When it was during the holidays, I would drink more. It was just all, every everything I related uh, to my life just was attached to alcohol and consumption of it. So it became a, a part of your life. Yep. Did you know at some point something is going to have to be done, even though you weren't yourself at that point yet? Was there something in the back of your mind that was saying, at some point, I'm going to have to get off this train? N not not at that point, not at all. Okay. I, I it was looking up in a key playoff game against Woodland. You caught a 71-yard TD pass and set up two other touchdowns with punt returns of 53 and 62 yards, all of which figured into a big victory. You became a good return guy. Is that something that you envisioned yourself as? I enjoyed it. it I, I enjoyed the chaos of it. There were bodies yeah. flying, looking for a hole, looking for, looking for a way to get upfield. Uh, they were actually kickoff returns. It, okay. it was a shootout with, uh, you know, they were scoring, we were scoring, it was back and forth. But yeah, it was, uh, I loved returning the football and, and kickoffs and punts. In another game against Burbank, and we talked about this before the show today, uh, you ran for 103 yards on three reverse plays, according to the B, in a game where you also caught three passes for another 63 yards. And on defense, you happened to snag an interception 
playing free safety. I'm not so sure that I've seen that type of performance ever. Do you remember the game? I do. Yeah, absolutely. The thing the thing that sticks out about the game is uh, for me is when I got uh, the opportunity to be put back at free safety, I made that interception and returned the ball about 20 yards, and the quarterback came up to the pile that I was underneath and literally kicked me in the ass. And I, really? I, I couldn't walk for right for about a week. <laughs> now, had you played free safety up until that point? A little defense? bit. A little bit in passing situations or at the end of the game. I know Max back in those days didn't have too many guys that played both ways, but you did. I did. Yeah. I played a little quarterback too in certain, probably about five plays that year, running situations. Had you played quarterback at Mitchell in a previous? I did. Yeah, yeah I was. A, I was a starting quarterback at Mitchell. We ran the option. Folks, we're talking to Joey Ortiz. We've got a lot more to cover here this afternoon. And now we're going to go to Sac City in 1990. You were a top target there. 38 catches, nearly 600 yards, uh, five touchdowns. You had a great season that year. And your coach, I believe, was Jeff Tisdale. It was Jeff Tisdale. Yes. How was he to play for? He was great. He was great. He would he, he he pushed you. He made you work and the the expectation level was super high. If you didn't live up to what he was you know demanding of you, you didn't play. Now, something work is hard work is something that is not foreign to you. In we're going to talk about your professional life a little later, but in football being prepared was obviously something even you had this other demon that's going on simultaneously, you still prepared for games 100%. Yeah. Do you, do you mind if I touch on something that was pivotal that happened at Sac City my first year? Absolutely. The night before my first game, my sister's fiancé was murdered on Mac Road. He was part of a double execution murder, and I was actually supposed to be there. We were supposed to go jet skiing after practice, but I forgot my jet ski at home. So I went home and got the phone call that he had been killed showed up there. I drove there as fast as I could, showed up, and uh, there was I had to walk over a 10-foot pool of blood to get the dog out of the house. It was my sister's fiancé. And uh, I showed up to the football game the next day, and Jeff Tisdale tried to send me home because he saw me on the news acting crazy at the scene. And uh, <clears throat> I refused to go home. We played this cat-and-mouse game, Mike, for about three minutes, go home, you're not playing, go home, you're not playing, go home, you're not playing. I told Jeff Tisdale, I said, well, then cut me. I'll walk to American River College, and when we play each other in week eight, I'll kick your ass myself. He said, get dressed. <laughs> and I played, and I took it out on the defenders that game. I think I only had like two receptions, but I was ringing people's bells. Wow. that I I did not know that. That That, that is amazing. A tragedy seems to have hit you in a number of different ways. Uh, most of it not of your own volition, some of it self-inflicted. I want to take you back to a tough subject, uh, the early morning of April 20th, 1991. It was late, shortly after 1 a.m., and you were in Rio Linda at the time. At the home of a friend, you and several others had exited the house and then congregated on the curb when, without warning, a hit-and-run driver plowed into the crowd, hitting you and three others, but you took the worst of it. The impact was so great that it hurled you up to 75 feet, and you landed down the street, and you were knocked unconscious. It was a horrific collision. You were airlifted to UCD Medical Center. You were in a coma for three days. And just to give our listeners the breadth of what we're talking about and to illustrate 
you sustained a broken leg, a broken pelvis, several broken ribs, a ruptured bladder, bruised kidneys, head and neck injuries that required 250 stitches, and I'm probably forgetting some of the others. I lost half my left calf. What went through your mind, Joey, when you woke up? When was I going to get back on the football field? How long are you in the hospital? A week. I, I, I was in the coma for three days. It took me four more days of basically acting a fool at the hospital, cussing out nurses, throwing stuff, unhooking my tubes every time I got a chance, trying to get out of bed. Uh, I had this huge 50-pound expandable cast on my left leg. I couldn't walk. I was through my crutches a few times across the room, and basically they kicked me out after a week, told me not to come back. I've seen some of the pictures of you in the hospital, and they're pretty tough to take. And by all rights, you shouldn't be here sitting before me. And if it wasn't through God's grace, you probably wouldn't have been. And we'll talk about that shortly. But even today, some of the injuries are still apparent. I know you still think about it. But through your writing, you've written now four books. Has writing about these experiences helped you to reconcile what happened that that night? Absolutely. Yeah, it, uh, I was able to re-channel my tragedy and turn it into my biggest triumph. Um, when I quit drinking, I was able to reflect on over that, all that I was able to overcome and made it uh, the easiest decision ever to quit drinking because I was able to reflect on all the tragedy I overcame. A lot of times people will internalize and justify either going back to it. This was obviously a scared straight life or death moment that you had. You know, you talked about wanting to get, get right back on the football field. Now, several doctors and therapists told you that football was out of the question and that you'd never play again, right? So what was your initial reaction to that? I refused to hear it. I was they were talking to the wall. Yeah, you had lost how much of your calf? Half of my left calf, the inner left calf. How many surgeries were on your on your leg just alone? Um, two when I was in the hospital, one on my ankle, one on my leg. Doctors sometimes have their own opinions. This isn't one something that you wanted to hear, but your own rehab began quickly. In your book, you talked about doing arm curls. You reportedly didn't like to use a cane or a wheelchair. Those had connotations to them. What was your track to get back out of the hospital and, and get well again to play? Well, as I, I was home for about three days. I started doing laps around the block on crutches, timing myself. Um, I had lost in a couple of weeks, I lost about 30 pounds from having broken teeth and knocked out teeth and not being able to eat because of the scar on my face or the, the wound, I should say, at that point. <clears throat> but uh, just staying active, staying active, lifting weights, and in in, I was confined to an easy chair at home for, you know, a month and a half before I really got heavy into my uh, rehab where I started driving myself to the – I trade cars with my sister because I had a stick shift and I couldn't drive a stick shift with my leg. So I drove her automatic to the gym and worked out there repeatedly and spent a lot of time in the gym. In those early days after the after the crash, who were some of your biggest supporters that helped you through this? My mom, Max Miller, uh, Jeff Tisdale, Brian Davis, my quarterback. 
That's great. And all of us, I think, can appreciate every one of those people are are well-known quantities and not just Rancho Cordova, but Sacramento. Max Miller, how much of an impact did he have in your life? As big as anybody outside of my mom. Max had coached at Cordova for a number of years, four different high schools. He actually approached me over the summer. He said, you know, there's a guy you should consider doing an interview with. And it was you, Joey Ortiz. And he said, I think he's going to surprise you. And already this interview has been a, a, a great surprise. You seem comfortable talking about your failures. Do you believe that in order to succeed in life, you've got to have, or you learn by failures? You've got to, it's life, your success is going to come down to how much failure you can stomach. You're going to, baseball, you're going to fail 70% of the time and you're in the Hall of Fame. So if you if you fail 70% in life, you're, you're batting 300. One way to look at it. Now, football wasn't your initial love. You liked baseball, I'm, right? Yeah, I'm actually a bigger baseball fan than a football fan. And, folks, full disclosure, Joey and I share a commonality. We're both Yankees fans. And he's decked out today in a pretty spiffy Yankee jacket and a pinstripe top. In fact, I'm not so sure I've ever seen you without one. I ran into you at an A's Yankees game last year. I couldn't get to you, and I, I remember yelling at you uh, up up in the stands. I think you saw me. You waved. I did. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we talked. Yeah, but uh, what led you to become a Yankees fan? Well, my dad hadn't been around for a better part of a couple of years and showed up on my porch and asked my mom if he could take me to L.A. On, for business and uh, ended up taking me uh, one of the days we were I was in L.A. with him, took me to game six of the 78 World Series, and we sat out in the left field. Uh, I was eating ice cream cone. He was, a, like I said, he was a drug user. He was smoking a joint watching the baseball game. <laughs> right there in front of you, huh? Right there in front of me. Jeez. You know, all the years of reckless living and abuse, Joey, left you open to change. And when I asked earlier, had, had you thought about at some point this train has got to end and where am I going to land? But a football coach invited you to church, and it was there that you had another life-changing experience. Tell us about that. I did, yeah. So I was working on my first book and uh, fired up my email one night after the 20-year class reunion I just went to for Cordova and got emailed to church. And the great thing about it was uh, it was through the Alumni Football League that I just got involved in. And the church I was invited to, I had sold the pastor of the church uh, SUV back in the mid-90s. So I knew what I was walking into. Um, I showed up to church as I do in life about an hour early and I walked in. They knew I was coming because I told them I was coming. And I walked in, Mike, and there was four beautiful women on stage, not a person in this huge church. And these ladies are singing their hearts out with tears in their eyes. Not for me, for the love of the Lord, but uh, I walked in and sat in the first row. And the church slowly filled up over about the next 45 minutes. And um, Pastor Doug walked up to me and thanked me for coming and uh it was, uh, it was something that was overdue, uh, but I gave my life to the Lord on the spot. Wow. Who was the coach that uh, took it, you to church? It was Gary Cavender. Okay. He connected me with Roy Davis, who was, um, may, may he rest in peace, just passed away on the 7th. Of this month? Of this month, yeah. Oh, my goodness. 
Now, had you and Roy kept touch all these years after? Um, I hadn't talked to him for he he was uh, dealing with Parkinson's, I believe, and I hadn't talked to him for a couple years, but I stayed in touch with his son here and there. Okay. Now, coming to the Lord the way you did, you obviously have a situation with your father. Have you been able to forgive your dad? Long time ago. Take me through that. How did that process work? Well, I just realized, I think I read something that, you know, I could take what he did to me and make it my problem, or I could just let him have to deal with it on his, his terms. He knows, he knows what he did. And, um, I had, I, like I said, I reframed the tragedy and the, the torture that he put me through. And it, it, I've been able to use that low spot in life to get through some, uh, difficult times on my own. How many years had elapsed between the time he left and when you reapproached him? Well, so he was basically out of the picture around 88. He would show up at some of my football games here and there. Um, but I, other than that, I didn't see him really ever. Um, and then uh, so from 88 to 2008, I hadn't seen him one time. And then we got reconnected and it was something bad happened. But uh, I, I have I've only talked to him since then, probably three times. Is he still alive? Yeah, he lives in da- Texas. Okay. Yeah, Dallas. All right. Did you let him know that you had forgiven him? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yep. What was his reaction to that? Um, was it one of that he accepted or? He's he's really the same guy. He he started talking bad about my mom right out the gate, and which I didn't have any patience for that. And, you know, I hadn't talked to him in years. He's going to be hating on my mom. So. Yeah, that's um, not the right thing to do. No, but uh, he he had he hasn't evolved. What would you tell a young person having been through you what you've been through? What would you tell a young person, maybe a teenager or a young adult that is going through addiction right now? What would you tell what what words of encouragement would you give them? I would say uh really pause and trust yourself and uh, give yourself the uh, opportunity to work through whatever problems you're going through where you don't have to rely upon alcohol or drugs to be that crutch. Uh, There's answers that we can all find, uh, you know, to get through different problems. Um, So alcohol and drugs aren't the way. Uh, It's just, it's gonna take you down a really dark road that there's the, the end spot usually gonna end up in the grave. You wrote in your book that even as a child, you were rambunctious. And if there was trouble or if there was a daredevil stunt or if there was something on the fringe, you were right there from at the uh, at the American River. I mean, some of the stuff you did going off the, you know, the clay banks pales in comparison. I mean, did other kids do that kind of stuff or did you just reinvent the wheel on this? No, all the neighborhood kids I that I hung out with on my street, we we, we were we lived down at the river. I, I grew up um, two blocks from the American River, and uh, like I said, all my friends were about three to five years older than me, so they had they were a little bit of a bad influence on me. But I I got off on the adrenaline. Well, sometimes kids will be kids, but uh, you know, you had. Before you became clean and sober, turned to harder drugs like cocaine and more alcohol. Tell me about that and how you ultimately beat it. I know uh, 
having a religious religious conversion, converting to, to Christ is one thing, but that's always going to be there in the back of your mind. What? How did you deal with finally stopping? Well, I was a, a drug addict to cocaine the after the first time I did it. I ended up spending 15 years chasing that initial high, trying to replicate what I what I had done, um, and uh, it was it was a long, 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 dark road. Same thing with alcohol. Spent 30 years drinking, uh, and I could never get enough of either either one of them. Um, how I, I think you asked me how I ended up quitting. My, uh, my wife at the time of uh, uh, 10 years walked out on me, and um, I put on my shoes to walk, walk up the street. I lived in Elk Grove at the time to get another 12-pack of beer because I only had one beer in the refrigerator. I fell asleep. I woke up the next morning, had only drank eight beers, not 38, which was my personal best. And uh, I was I was going to walk up the street and I walked down the street and was going to go in the store and get a 12 pack and said, you know, what, I'm done. I reflected upon all that I had uh, overcome in my life and decided that this was going to be the easiest decision I ever made to quit drinking. Wow, that's that's powerful. Yeah, powerful stuff. In your book, you write you wrote about uh, after the accident, and I quote, the first mistake was telling me it was impossible. Impossible, you write, is an opinion. The comeback had already begun. You don't portray yourself as a victim. In fact, you're kind of the anti-victim. You don't want to be thought of as someone that's living in victimhood. You overcome obstacles. And to the extent that you have, Joey, you've overcome at least a half a dozen of them. What word of encouragement, uh, some words of encouragement could you give a young person who's constantly told, no, he can't do, he or she can't do this in life because there's obstacles? Well, I like to saying that everything's impossible until someone does it. Um, like like we've talked about, they told me I'd never play again or never run, which of course I proved them wrong. Um, I think once you apply uh, a, a diligent work eth ethic, to what you're trying to accomplish in life hopefully it's good a, a positive thing you can you can do anything you put your mind to as long as you're willing to do the work you're married to a wonderful lady now kim i am tell me about her tell me the type of influence that she's had in your life well, we've been together now coming up on 10 years. Uh, we went to high school together, but we were kind of in different circles, so we didn't really know each other. So she's a Cordova grad? She's a Cordova grad, okay. yeah. yeah. She went to Mitchell, Cordova, um, and uh, she's part Vietnamese, um, and uh, she's got a giant heart. Um, she's loving, she's caring. Uh, we, we obviously, no relationship's perfect. The thing that her and I have together, which which is um, priceless, is we can disagree upon something. We can even get into a semi-argument, and 10 minutes later, we apologize and we move on. We don't hold any grudges or no lack of communication, things like that. But she's the, the thing that stands out with her, for me, is her heart. And uh, she's uh, overcame cancer three times, Mike, since we've been together. Wow. Three times. That's amazing. So she's had personal challenges too, obviously. Absolutely. Uh, th that is amazing. You two, I take it, are equally yoked in many ways. Uh, do you uh, share faith together? Yes. Okay, good. And, you know, the folks, we're talking to Joey Ortiz from Rancho Cordova, 
former star athlete who's overcome probably more challenges and tragedies than most of us would care to experience. And we're right now we're talking about Kim and the importance that she has. I know I, I met her for the first time the other day when I was at your house. I'd seen her from afar. And we all know that uh, having a supportive spouse is a thousand percent. You've got to have that. It sounds like uh, the two of you have that. Now, professionally, uh, you've had a couple of pretty good gigs. One as a, uh, a car salesman, and you also worked uh, as a auto lender. And then another, you were one of the top tough shed sellers in the country. Is that right? That's correct. Kind of take me through. Let's go back to your auto days first. What led you to, to uh, work in the auto industry? Well, my mom's longtime boyfriend worked at a local Ford dealer for 25 years. And uh, I get the call one day when I was, you know, not working out of college, just still partying. And at the time, and uh, called me up and said, you want to come sell cars? And I was, didn't even think about it for one second. I said, sure. So he said, come down the next day, we'll get you started. And uh, it took me, the average car salesman sells seven cars a month in the nation at the time. And uh, typically, with the, we would be called a green pea in the car business world. Uh, it takes you about three to four days to sell a car. But it took me two weeks to sell a car because I had no idea what I was doing. And my training program at the time was, here's the brochures, take a moment and read them. So I had to figure out how to sink or swim real quick and uh, start selling cars. Like I said, it took me a couple of weeks. Then it dawned on me about three weeks into it, you know, if I show up first to work before anybody else gets here, I'm gonna get the first customer of the day. And those are usually the customers that wanna avoid the salesman and they don't wanna be helped and they just wanna look around. That's why they get there an hour before the store opens. So I would show up before all my other colleagues and I would have a car sold when they're just getting to work. The value of showing up to work early, and as my mom would always say, if you're not early, you're late. In fact, folks, he arrived at today's interview a full 20 minutes at least ahead of the interview, and I typically get her first. Did you happen to read a book on salesmanship, or did you have a mentor? I did. I was at home watching TV, and uh, Tony Robbins' uh, tape series on unlimited power, or personal power, I should yes. say, came on, and I, I grabbed the phone and bought it immediately and and that was when I commuted to work from Ranch Cordova to downtown Sacramento every day I listened to his CDs and it uh, opened up the uh, possibilities of what is possible if you will um, through having an open mind and um, you know being uh, having a you know personal power just by definition and uh, it, it took me from I was selling at the time about 13 cars and three months later I was selling 32 cars a month Wow. So you probably had a lot of word of mouth, a lot of reciprocal business referrals. People would uh, refer out and go see Jory Ortiz. I did. That's that's amazing. And then after that, you started selling tough sheds. What was the transition like? Um, once again, it was that it was super exciting, just like getting into cars because I had no idea what I was doing. So I was learning something new. I didn't know anything about construction, even though it's a wood shed, it's still built like a small house. And I, I had no knowledge of construction. So I learned uh, that quickly and uh, just applied the same things that I did on the football field and, and selling cars and showing up early, uh, being the first one to work. Um, establishing and building great uh, relationships with the Home Depot reps that I trained around Northern California. 
it was it was real positive. But I, the, the only reason I left is they kept putting too many obstacles, and the better I did, the harder they made it on me. So I decided to move on. That's that's amazing, and uh, you know certainly you have a a solid work ethic. Number three in the nation in sales, is that right for Tough Shed? One to three. One to three. At any at any point, yeah. Okay. We're talking once again with Joey Ortiz, and Joey, uh, you've had the great experience with two super jobs. What's on the horizon? What's next? I know right now you're kind of taking some time off, but what are your thoughts? Well, I've I've been in long communication with the former uh, Cordova grad Charlie Hesse, and I'm I'm uh, in, going to partner with him in cannabis sales. Excellent, excellent. Now, is he here in California, or are you looking at another state? Sacramento, but we're gonna we're gonna uh, actually approach uh, uh, manufacturers around the nation and growers. Okay. Now, is this for medicinal use? Uh, the CBD oils. Okay. Looking at what what you've accomplished and some of the, I mean, we're going to go back to the fact that you're 15 years clean and sober. You speak to groups about uh, about your own experiences. I do. Yeah, I've spoken to many uh, football teams around the area, youth groups. Okay. What's the one underlying message you try to convey to them, especially if you're talking about high school football teams, right? Right. What's that message you're imparting to these kids? Always believe in yourself and never give up. I think that's important today, especially since young people today have so many influences, whether it's uh, on their handheld devices, their phones, they're getting bombarded with different information. How do you separate the noise from staying focused? Uh, it's really just comes down to get to be locked in on what you're trying to accomplish. You got to block everything out and uh, just plow through to where, what your end goal is. Now, we we couldn't uh, – I'd be remiss if we didn't bring up Edith, your car, your 70 Chevelle SS454, right? Correct. That thing's a beast. It is. How is it you came to acquire that particular car? So I've always had an attraction to muscle cars. Like I said, I grew up in a neighborhood with kids that were older than me. And in that neighborhood, when I was 12, they had one guy had a 67 Camaro. One guy had a 67 Mustang. The same guy that had the Camaro ended up getting a 57 Chevy. There was a 63 Impala on the street. So when I'm 12, I'm driving already around the neighborhood. Is that right? These muscle cars. Yeah, they're, you know, they're all my friends here. You you can drive it. We're just putting around, you know, no big deal. Um, But I would start wrenching on it with them in their cars and, you know, working on them and, I've just always had a fascination for muscle cars, and I had wanted a Chevelle for years. Back in the 90s, I had restored a, a former basket case 71 Corvette and then ultimately sold it. But um, I always wanted that Chevelle, and I wanted a 70 because I was born in 1970. And uh, my grandma, uh, growing up, had a 442 Olds, which is the same car. It's an A-body car. Mm-hmm. It's just an Olds product. And uh, pre-child safety laws, she would and seatbelt laws, she would we'd be standing up in the back seat with driving down the freeway. Oh, jeez! <laughs> with your grandma driving. With my grandma driving, yeah. <laughs> so my grandma, may she rest in peace. Her name was Edith Becker, so I named my black car Edith. Okay, as a gotcha. To her, yeah, yeah. The license plate, folks, is a retro black uh, California plate with the gold lettering that says "70 Edith" on it. I happen to park right next to it today. Uh, so nobody else would hit it. I parked 
to the left of it. And, oh, thank you. No, well, of course. It's easily recognizable. Speaking of cars, I know you have a love for them. Back in the late 60s and early 70s, those were the true muscle cars from about 65 to 71, 72 perhaps. Yep. What other kind of muscle cars really caught your fancy besides the Chevelle? Or was the Chevelle always it? I was always a Corvette fan. Um, I've had a couple of them over the years. Um, I bought myself a birthday present in 2000. I bought a 2000 black Corvette, which I've had better skateboards. That car was in the shop 33 times in three years. Oh, wow. <laughs> What's the main problem with, with vets? Oh, uh, that one was everything. I mean, the power seat, the transmission, the rear end, the radio sometimes would work. The, the roof leaked really bad. The tensioner police seized, um, it was it, it leaked oil. It, it ate oil too. You'd have to put a quart of oil in every thousand miles. It was a bad car. Now, were you one to do drag races as a, as a kid? Did you go out to the raceway or just do it on Folsom Boulevard? And or what was? What we was did your... all the guys I grew up with were out at Sacramento Raceway on Wednesday and, and Friday nights. Excellent. I'm hearing that Sac Raceway may close, or maybe it's already closed. It already sure. did, yeah, did about it? a month and a half ago, yeah. That's too bad, because I know even when I grew up, a lot of kids went out there and took uh, – uh, Marty Nelson had his uh, 66 GTO. We didn't want to run it on Folsom Boulevard because of the cops, and we went out to the raceway and did it. That was a great outlet for young people. And I was sorry to see that that place was going to close. How important it is, is it, in your opinion, to have a place like that where young people can go out and race their cars? Well, those young people, that unfortunately, they're still going to be racing, but they're going to be doing it on the streets now more than ever because that raceway is closed. That was, a, that was a, you know, somewhere they could go, and it's not breaking the law. It's considerably safer. Um, it's in a, you know, governed um, – it's just, it's, it's all channeled. Right. Right. I know illegal street racing is a big deal, especially in Sacramento, especially with side shows and some of the other things that are going on. And again, that venue, it's too bad. I hope perhaps it comes back in a different iteration because kids, young people still like to race. I know they did when I, when I was young and, and you did as well. Is the uh, 70 Chevelle is something you're going to keep? Absolutely. It's not for sale. Okay. I've had, it's funny. I've had uh, uh, probably four or five uh, offers to sell it or to, for someone. I was at the car show yesterday, and a probably 70-year-old gentleman comes up to me and asks me if that's my car. And I said, yeah. And he goes, you want to sell it? And I said, uh, not really. He goes, I'll give you 80 grand for it right now. I said, it's not for sale. He goes, I'll give you 90. I said, it's not for sale. He goes, I'll give you 100, and that's it. I said, well see the license plate and then i told them the story about my grandmother i said it's not for sale my kids when i'm gone it'll be their car and they know to not sell it it's not for sale plus if you did your grandmother would probably look down upon you too uh, rather she would frown on something like that oh yeah did you let her know that you named the car after her i've talked to her yeah my yeah. and it's my it's my mom's mom so my mom loves it as well sure any other cars on the horizon you want to get besides that one? No. I'm good. What do you think about the new muscle cars? I know that Dodge came out with kind of a legacy series. They produced a uh, 2023 Super B and a, I think a Dodge a Dart as well, limited number. What's the difference between those cars and the ones, say, back in the late 60s, early 70s? Oh, well, obviously the technology, the you know the driving ability of the car, the the 
the traction control, the ABS, the, uh, you know, the different thing, the lane stability, um, j just the, the cars are safer, the sensors on the car, and then the horsepower that these new cars put out. I mean, 500 horsepower is nothing. You got cars now putting out seven, eight, nine, a thousand horsepower. Not to mention the price. I saw the uh, Super B, it listed for 64, but apparently the Sacramento Dodge dealership, they put them out to bid. That's the starting bid. My brother had a 69B, and just out of grins and giggles, I looked and contacted the uh, Sacramento Dodge dealership. Mm -hmm. He said, yeah, the bids, I think they're going to close their bids the end of March, but the one of the managers told me it wouldn't be surprising to see that car go for eighty or ninety thousand. Oh yeah, they put they call it a market adjustment now. We used to call it a dealer markup, which really it is, where they would put thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars on top of the manufacturer suggested retail price, and they're going to get it. They're going to get it. We were getting it at Dodge when I worked at Dodge on the on the Challenger when it came out and the um, Charger. Absolutely, this the California Express trucks we got on all of them. Oh wow. We're talking to Joey Ortiz, Rancho Cordova athlete, car salesman, car aficionado, Yankees fan, uh, and everything in between. L looking ahead, we're going to stay on the topic of cars. Where do you see cars going? I know electric vehicles are, you know, in vogue in, in certain areas. Will there always be a role for an internal combustion engine? I think so, yeah. For, I was watching a thing on TV this morning. Ford produced all these Mach-E Mustangs. They can't give them away. Yeah, that's the crossover. That's uh, the that's the SUV Mustang yeah. electric EV vehicle. Yep, and they can't sell them. They they've got tons of them. And they can't sell them. I think there's always going to be a, a role for a muscle car, internal combustion engine, uh, the roar. It's almost like taking the Harley out of Harley if you yank all of them. I would think. But uh, how, how does your wife feel about uh, you and in in cars? Does she like it too? Um, she likes cars. Yeah. She's, she's, uh, she's, uh, she's got it pretty good. She's always driving a newer Lexus and, uh, and she's got a hybrid now. She enjoys it. It's got all the parking sensors on it. She likes because pulling in our driveways, our garage is a little bit tight. This gives her the ability to ensure that she's not going to run into the, my car or the wall. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been in many car crashes? That's one thing I haven't asked you about. Even as a kid, uh, did something happen in addition to what happened in real end of that night? Any other? I've probably been in four. Um, one of them was in a 65 Chevelle that uh, a friend of ours had restored at Folsom Lake. On day one, we got rear-ended and the car was totaled back in, I think, 1988. Now, you took driver ed at Cordova, right? I did. You remember who your teacher was? Max Miller. Is that right? Yep. How, how did that go? It went great. I'd already been driving for several years. So. <laughs> so you passed pretty easily. Yeah, Max, I, I think I drove 15 minutes and then, then I was done. <laughs> yeah, Max, so you checked all the boxes. Right. That's that's great. I had Ken Bowles. I love Ken Bowles. As, as my uh, you know, driver ed teacher. Uh, Ken Bowles and Lynn Elliott. I don't know if Lynn was there when you were there or not. He was a basketball coach and then he taught some other stuff, but. Uh, I graduated in 73, so we had a, some teachers that were still there when you finally got there. Looking at Rancho Cordova, I wanted to ask you about this. Since you live in Gold River now, and you and your wife do, what, how do you see Rancho now as far as the future goes? And I'm not just talking about athletically. What's, what are some of the changes you've seen to the, for the better for this community? 
well, there's businesses that are that are flocking here. There, there, there's a big uh, uh, electronic vehicle battery company that's just starting out back at Aerojet. Mm-hmm. That just, I think they got a, I don't know if it's a two hundred thousand square foot warehouse they're building. Right. There's a new handles ice cream. There's sprouts here that just came on board. There, the Anatolia area's got businesses popping up. They're building new houses anywhere they can. Uh, I I see Rancho Cordova flourishing. Rancho Cordova, you know, sometimes gets a bad rap, but I think Rancho Cordova has got the same crime rate as Folsom or Roseville. Right, right. And plus, the community itself is really can do and and doing things. They have plans for a uh, a uh, Zinfandel overcrossing. They got a twenty million dollar grant from the federal government. It's going to be a showpiece when that thing is built in a couple of years. And some of the things they're doing downtown is, just, in fact, right here at the uh, California Capitol uh, Film Office. I know Charles does productions here. So I think I agree with you that Rancho has become a destination, not just for, for businesses, but for young families coming in, too. And I think looking at Cordova High School, with all the improvements that have gone over there, I think you're going to start to see more and more kids choosing Cordova, say, other than other uh, other schools as well. Going to Cordova, we had a beautiful campus. It was very college-like, um, the way that the buildings were laid out with the really uh, open camp, open uh, quad. And since I've graduated from there, and it's been many years, they've got the new, uh, the, um, the Performing Arts, Arts Center. Performing Arts yeah. Center. They got the new, I think it's a science building they built. They, they, there's tons of construction that's gone. There. They got the new uh, weight room and training facility and locker room for the football team. Oh, that weight facility is a, that's a division one weight uh, class weight facility. Oh, yeah. You know, it's a lot different from when we went there. Right. And of course, the new turf at the field, you've got lights. Uh, although, I got to be honest with you, I miss Saturday afternoon football. Uh, I don't. It doesn't happen anymore, or if it does, when they play Jesuit, they play over there. But there was nothing like Saturday afternoon uh, football at 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 Cordova High School. One hundred five. Yeah. Oh yeah. That and those. It, it always happened on time too, uh, without a doubt. I ask you a couple of questions that are a little off topic as we close, Joey. What's your number one pet peeve? Mean people. Okay. Good answer. And that is why, basically. Well, I like to be a kind person and I like to give with no expectation of receiving anything in return. And I just don't have patience for mean people. I can can be, I'm like most people, there's that duality. I can be the nicest person in the world. I also have a pretty bad temper when I need to have one. So, but I don't like to show that. And I don't like to be mean or mad or whatever. So I, I, see, I think when I meet mean people, um, I don't have a lot of patience for that, if you will. Let me throw this one at you. If you could be someone else, either past or present, for one day, who would that be? Anybody? Anybody. Past or present. Uh, it's a toss-up between... Andy Pettit or Derek Jeter? Wow, two Yankees, two different types of people. Right. I want to be. I want to be Andy Pettit in Game Seven. I want to be Derek Jeter uh, with the bases loaded. Excellent. Both former Yankees uh, Hall of Famers now. 
definitely. And uh, Jeter, of course, is always in the news for something. You remember the first time you saw Derek Jeter play? Uh, it was probably 96 midseason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He came up for a brief cup of coffee at the end of the 95 season. He did. But uh, 96 was really when he made his mark. And, of course, Pettit, probably one of the best left-handers uh, in the in the game. Where do you see baseball going? We talk a little ball as we as we close here. You, obviously, we follow the Yankees. How about some of the new rules? Are you on board with them? Some of them a little uh, not? Or what's your thought? I don't like extra innings putting the guy on second. I, I, I'm not a big fan of that. Yeah, neither am I. Uh, the the pitch clock I kind of like. Uh, I think it shortens the game a little bit. I don't know. I I think they said it takes seven minutes off or something. It's not you know a huge amount of time, but. Well, it does, and I was initially not a fan of the pitch clock, but something that I believe either Max Scherzer or one of the star pitchers said, hey, the good pitchers don't need 20 seconds, and he's right. I started watching Clayton Kershaw, uh, some of the others, 10, 12, 14 seconds, boom. They know what they're going to throw. They're in sync with their catcher. Your mid-level and mediocre guys are the ones that are shaking off the catcher all the time, taking too much time. But the pitch clock I'm on board with. Yeah, it, it, it takes 10 to 12 to 15 minutes off the games. Okay. Uh, the other rule that I'm not really big on is the big bigger bases because the bases are three inches larger. And if you extrapolate that out, that's six inches shorter base pass for the runner. So I predicted earlier before this season that you'd have a ton of guys stealing 40, 50, 60 bases. It didn't quite pan out that way, but you can tell the bases are are much bigger. They wanted to introduce more running into the game, and I think that's what's happened. The other thing that I don't like, and I don't know if there's a way to make it uh, not part of something that they wear, is the guy? I think there's more guys that have legitimate wrist or finger injuries that are wearing that boot. Oh, because it gets the them, oven mitt. It gets the oven mitt. It gets them four inches closer to the base. That's another problem I have. Uh, somebody pointed out, I think it was on ESPN, that that mitt is three inches longer than your fingertip, whereas a batting glove fits snug, right? Well, the oven glove is much longer. So on a head first slide, that's another benefit and another advantage that the runner is going to have. So, yeah, I agree with you. Uh, something needs to be done with that. But like anything else, and, of course, the DH is now universal. I can remember the day when the DH was first introduced back in 1973. I thought it was an abomination. And the guy that did it was for the Yankees, Ron Blomberg. Bloomberg, I guess that's what his name. He couldn't field. He was a mediocre hitter, but I thought, there's just no way this is going to last. And sure enough, it's lasted all these years. Yeah, I didn't like the hitter, the pitchers hitting. I think it gave the the guys that did hit the ball, it gave them too much of an opportunity to get hurt running the bases. Mm-hmm. Even trying to run to first base, you know, they'd pull a quad or hamstring. or Sure, I, and that's what happened to DeGrom last year. And Jack Flaherty sustained an injury too, swinging the bat, because they're not used to doing it. How do you feel about Otani signing with the Dodgers? And he's not going to pitch next year. He's, he's had two Tommy John surgeries already. Um, 
seven hundred million for a DH is a lot of money, but I and I haven't read into it fully. But I guess they stretch that con. It's a ten year contract, but they're going to be paying him for thirty years. It's going to be like Bobby Bonilla Day, right. where he's going to get ten million every March third or something like yeah, that. Yeah, they they deferred it quite a bit in order to get him. I had a hunch, frankly, he wasn't going to leave Southern California. Yeah. Uh, he loves it down there, and if the Angels weren't going to sign him, it's either the Dodgers or the Padres. But uh, you know, Dodgers fans, I'm sure, are very happy. I'm worried about what that contract, the only thing really I'm worried about that contract is what it's going to do for guys coming up that are getting ready to resign. That it moved the needle from Trout money at $500 million, now they're $700 million. It's a flick, flick of a switch. Right. I mean, it's almost dang near double than, than what uh, Aaron Judge got. Right. Huh. And that was a lot of money. Of so, uh, unbelievable. Well, Joey, hard to believe uh, our time is up, but I want to thank you for coming in. This has been fabulous, and thank you for sharing your story. Uh, I think a lot of value came out of this today, and I hope a lot of people listen to it because you are unstoppable, and you've shown that, and I'm glad that we're able to have this chance to talk today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure being here, Mike. Absolutely. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. And folks, once again, our interviews topic today has been Joey Ortiz and we wish everybody a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Thanks, Joey. Thank you.